So uh, we're talking today about forgiveness and, of course, the, the opposite, the culture of forgiveness that God calls is the kingdom of God to create. And then also the, uh, what happens in society when we don't know how to practice forgiveness or we choose not to pr- practice forgiveness and what happens systemically in society and, um, and what happens in our lives when we uh, grow in a place of resentment. Um, there is uh, always the job of us as Christians not just to... Uh, listen to the words on Sunday morning, but to dig into the words um, on, uh, throughout the week and to, and to understand those words and to, and to more fully process those words and then to integrate them into our lives. And so um, maybe you've noticed, maybe you haven't, but over recent months I've been trying more to give us little homework assignments and uh, through the message drop some things that I think would be helpful for us to to meditate on throughout the week. And so um, I'm going to just start this message by giving a few uh, passages of Scripture that relate to this topic that I probably, I certainly at this point won't have the opportunity to dig into those passages. I want to really encourage you throughout the week to look into these. If you take notes, um, write these down. If you take notes on your phone or if you take notes uh, in the bulletin that was given to you, I ask that you write these down. Genesis 50, this is the passage where Joseph um, forgives his brothers um, when they have treated him atrociously. And it's the culminative moment, moment of forgiveness. Ephesians 4, um, the, the culminating verse in Ephesians 4 there is, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. But it's a whole text in both Ephesians and Colossians about how we live body life together in the kingdom and the role that forgiveness plays in that. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is actually about our ministry when it comes to forgiveness, to be ministers of reconciliation. Um, and so I, I also encourage you in your time to dig into that passage and look at a story of the power of forgiveness, look at the texts that proclaim how we live in this together, and then ultimately the mission that we have when it comes to forgiveness. But our text for today is in um, John chapter 20. And this is a spectacular moment here. It's just a few verses that we're cutting through today. And this is, um, this is in the, uh, the day of resurrection. Jesus has risen from the dead on this day that we're reading the text about. And every, you know, every Sunday is resurrection day. We know that, right? That we celebrate on Sundays together because every day throughout the history of the church, the reason we celebrate on Sundays is because it's resurrection day. And so today we remember again the resurrection. So our text is in John chapter 20, and um, it's down in verse 19, 19 through 23. Um, And I'm going to actually have you just stay seated because we're going to hustle a little bit this morning um, to get through as much as we can with the time we have remaining. Daryl, can I put you on the spot and have you pray for us um, just for this message? Thanks. Amen. Thanks, brother. So, uh, verse 19. On the evening of that day, that's resurrection day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Now, I want to stop here for a second. The disciples are in a room with the doors locked, and they're afraid. 
outside of those doors, they don't know what's going to happen. But they have witnessed things and experienced things that no one should see. No one should ever see their best friend hanging on a Roman cross and bleeding out. No one should ever see that. And they just saw that. What's more, though, is that they know that they're, they're next in line, that they're being gunned for. And what's more than that is, is when you think about it, think about this process for them. God, in their mind, is dead. God is dead. Think about whatever the circumstances are in our life that are difficult. And as Christ followers, as followers of Jesus, we lean into Jesus as the one who we have hope in in the midst of our difficulty. Those who are going through difficulties at home right now or those who have health issues going on, you're leaning into Christ. And you're saying, I count on you, Jesus. When you have issues that are difficult relationally or difficult at work or when we're looking culturally at what's going on in our culture, we lean into God and our hope is there because God's there. And that's what we lean into. But I want you to picture for just a second, if we knew definitively that God no longer existed, that he was dead, what would you do right now in those situations in your life if you were like, God is not here to help me out. He is definitively not here. Man, that, that changes everything. These guys learned to lean into Jesus for the last three years of their life. They wrapped their lives around depending on Jesus, but he's dead right now. Dead. Like literally dead. I think we can be sympathetic to the fact that they're behind locked doors. You know? And they got it bolted and locked. But those doors, you know, doors mean something. Doors are gateways into other things. They're openings. That's where we open to let things in and where we open to go into something else. And what's outside of those doors is the stuff that they're afraid of. Everything that's outside of those doors is what they're afraid of. The pain is out there. The hatred's out there. The confusion and the despair, and the disorientation, all of that is out there. So what they're doing is they're holding up, and they're getting in as small of a space as they can with those who they can trust, at least to a degree, and then they're bolting the door. You ever been there? Ever been in that place where you're like, that's scary, I don't want to go there again. Like that situation, that relationship, that whatever, I do not want to engage that again. I don't know about you, but there's certain places in my life, things that have happened or places, you know, relationships I've had or situations I've been in where I'm like, I would do just about anything to avoid that situation again. You know, that is a locked door right there. I'm like, no, no, no to that thing. You know, and that's the situation they're in, except systemically in their life, you know. They're living in fear right now. Well, then Jesus steps in. Jesus just shows up and I don't know if you've ever been really surprised by someone who you didn't expect to see. Sometimes it takes a while for your brain to kind of catch up. Jen threw me a surprise party once. Uh, my 30th birthday totally got me hard. And we showed up at this restaurant in Lancaster, and I had just had surgery on my leg, and I'm on crutches. Trish can sympathize. And I'm, I'm on the crutches, and I, I come walking into this restaurant, and Jen said, because it was my birthday, she's taking me out for my birthday, and uh, she said, we have a reservation for Deering, and they're like, oh, you're upstairs. And I'm like, really? 
Like, I'm on the crutches. Like, couldn't you have done this downstairs? Like, and I'm thinking, like, why can't we? So I get the crutches in one hand, the railing on the other, and I'm, like, hobbling up the stairs. I get to the top of the stairs, and I'm, like, annoyed right now, you know? And I look up, and my brother is standing there looking at me from Cincinnati. And I'm, like, like, totally out of context. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that. I've seen people at uh, a surprise parties get angry before, you know, because they're like emotions, don't know how to catch up with what's going on. And sometimes when you're shocked, you just can't process quick enough. And I think that's what happens in the room here. They're, all re- they're systemically in fear. They are in a place of anxiety, tension, fear, and understandably so. But when Jesus, who is peace, shows up in this situation, they can't even process it first, I don't think. Like, and, and this is why I know that, because he has to repeat himself. But before he even repeats himself, it says he shows up, and the first thing that he does is he says, peace be with you. And this is, this is so important, because you think about this. Jesus is dead and resurrected. The whole game is changed. All the universe for all of eternity is changed by what just happened. And he steps into his Christ, to, uh, to his, uh, to his f- closest followers. And these are the first words that he's going to say to them. You want to hold on to those words. What are the first words that Jesus says after he rises from the dead when he sees his boys? Peace be with you. And I don't think that they, that really hits them. Sometimes Jesus speaks words to us, but we have a hard time actually receiving the words because we can't, uh, what, what's the, the lyric to the one song you were singing? Um, give me eyes to see um, the something of who you are. Give me eyes to see more of who you are. And what's the next line? Uh, yeah, to calm my anxious heart. Something to calm my anxious heart. Give me eyes to see more of who you are, that in knowing you, I, it, you calm my anxious heart. But I actually have to uh, have the eyes to see. And what happens is, is he shows up in the room, and they're like rubbing their eyes, I think, or something. And he says, peace, the very first words. He wants them to have peace because he wants them to actually see him. But they can't receive him or receive what he has for them until they let go, until they chill. And we got to be in the posture where we can actually see and hear. And so what he does is the next step is he shows them. It says, so he showed them, where is it? Uh, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. So there's a couple things here. First, he's like, it's really me. You know, this isn't just a figment of your imagination. I'm actually here. Here's the marks. I'm here. This is me. It's Jesus. And, and you know, there's those moments where you sense God's presence, but you're like, can I really lean into that thing? Is that actually God? You know, can I lean into this promise of God or not? Or is that me just wanting that to be true? You know, and so he's like authenticating that this is really me. And then the other thing is he's saying, see, basically, see these holes? This is what you're afraid of out there. You're afraid of what you've seen and experienced out there. You're afraid of the blood that was spilled out there. You're afraid of the damage that was done out there. But I'm telling you that I'm standing here with holes in my hand, but I'm healthier than ever. There is nothing to fear. What are you afraid of? I have conquered death, and I'm here with you. Then he says it again. After that, it says, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad that they saw the Lord. So their eyes started to open. And then he says, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. 
He has to reiterate it. He has to say it again. How many times does God have to say to our crazy minds and our hearts? You know, uh, that our, it says, uh, he will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in the Lord. And whatever my anxieties are, he says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto the Lord. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And he will alleviate all of that. So he says, peace be with you. Now here's where, like, this is crazy because this is what actually wigs me out a little bit about this passage. He walks in. The first thing he says is peace. Now he can only say peace be with you because he's actually there. There is no peace if there's no God. When God was dead, there was a good reason to be afraid. But when he comes into the room, there is peace. But then he doesn't just come into the room. He declares peace because it's really important to state the truth. Not just for the truth to be there, but to state it. So he proclaims it and imparts it. He's saying, peace to you. And his word never returns void. So if Jesus is speaking peace and I'm receiving that peace, then I have peace. And I got to hold on to that, but it's mine. It's there. And he does that and he gives them the peace so that they can see him. But now it would be time in the relationship when, you know, you've been separated through death and you thought that everybody was going. This is the time when you pour some tea or have a cup of coffee and you catch up on like, so tell us what happened over the last couple days when you were dead in the grave. What's it like to be on the other side? Did you descend into hell? Were you with the father? How in the world did you come back from the dead? None of that. None of that. This is what he says. Peace be with you is what he says. Chill out. I got this. I'm here. And then listen, verse 21. Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Wait, what? Like, we're in this room together. We just saw you. This is the first thing you're saying to us is peace. And then I'm sending, it's time for you to go. <laughs> it's time for you to go. What? I mean, but this is how important the mission is to Jesus. You know, I've been thinking a lot about this over the last month for Parker Ford Church, we have emphasized over the last seven years here um, something that uh, we talk about as purpose over mission. It's easy to think that our job in life, our, our only thing in life, um, and, and the, the church kind of perpetuates this thing, that Christians exist for the purpose of bringing other people into the kingdom of God, telling other people about Jesus. That is not why we exist. Why we exist is to delight in God and to reveal his nature. We've talked about that a lot over the last seven years. That knowing God, walking with God, and revealing God in the way we relate to one another, that's our primary purpose. However, what I've thought a lot about over the last month um, is how easily it is to get sidetracked from knowing God and revealing God by losing sight of the mission that he called us to. And the mission he called us to is to proclaim Jesus to show Jesus, to take Jesus to a world that desperately needs him, to take the gospel, to bring the spirit of God and the power of his love to a world that needs it. Because what Jesus says is, I am on mission. Come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. As you've done to the least of these brothers of mine, you've done unto me. His great commandment to it, or the great commandment is that we love one another. We love him and we love one another. But the great commission, the sending, the mission, is that he has sent us to be ambassadors for him. Listen, 
We cannot maintain a thriving relationship with God if we are not on mission with God. The most exciting things that happen in our relationship with God happen when we're on mission with him. When we see him powerfully move in someone's life where we didn't think that was possible, man, the fireworks in our spirit start to go off. As soon as the Holy Spirit hit the disciples, as soon as it hit them, bam, they're proclaiming the gospel and they see 3,000 people come to Christ on the day of Pentecost. We have to be engaging in the mission. So which is why Jesus, from the very beginning, he's like, it's okay, I'm with you. Peace. That's as much calming as he gives them. And then as soon as he's done calming them, he says, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. And, and this is our mission. Now, when he sends us into the mission, he, he equips us. He doesn't just send us and leave us. He equips us for that mission. When he had said this, he breathed on them. Says Now, this is like, what does it look like for Jesus in this room? Get yourself in the room, and Jesus is breathing, <laughs> breathing on them. Like, I can't even like, really think about that without thinking how awkward that is. Like, what if I just walk around and breathe on you right now? Like, what is it? You know, we st- let's all turn and breathe on each other. Like, what does that mean? Or for, what does that look like? And I don't know what that looked like. We don't have any picture in here that says something spectacular happened. You know, on the day of Pentecost, we see the, the flame, you know, above their head and all that. But in this, it just says he breathed. Up. I don't know if he walked to each one of them and was like, you know, like he's blowing out candles or if he's like, like, smell my breath. Like, I don't know. Like, I don't know what he's doing. I don't know if he just does it once over the room. I mean, I, I get this picture kind of like the animated drawings of like what wind looks like, like lines that kind of are wispy lines or something like that. You know, I picture that filling up the room or something. But it doesn't say any of that. You know, sometimes there's these moments that are so important in our lives, but they don't seem all that spectacular in the moment. Have you ever had someone pray over you and there's this prayer that seems like it might not be all that significant and then later looking back you realize just how big that prayer was? I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but this is called a a prophetic declaration or a prophetic prayer when God puts it on someone to pray something or to an action to step into something, and it seems like a little deal in the moment, and yet what is manifested from that is huge. This is what it means when God's word does not return void. When Jesus steps in with authority and he breathes on them, And he says, receive the Holy Spirit. In a few days, they're going to be in an upper room again. But this time, it's not going to be with bolted doors because they're afraid. It's going to be because they're waiting on the Lord because he said to go and wait. And I'm about to send you and give you direction. And in that moment, there's going to be a stirring and a rushing and fire that comes above their head. But that happened in this moment because Jesus declares it. So he gives them the Holy Spirit. And then this is what he says. This is what's amazing. He, said, he, he uh, said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Ponder that for a second. Seriously, just take a second and ponder that. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness, if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. 
This is the first thing that Jesus says. He says, peace to you. He breathes on them. Says, he says, I'm sending you in, into mission. You have a mission. You have a job to do. I'm giving you the Holy Spirit for the purpose of fulfilling that job. If you forgive people, they will be forgiven. If you withhold the forgiveness, that forgiveness is withheld. What does that mean? What does that look like? Anger is such a problem in our world. It is a major, major problem in our world. This week is a really important week for us to be talking this through after what happened in Orlando. You know, in the last 12 months, there has been 10 mass shootings in America, 10 mass murders in America. In 12 months, 10 of them. I I don't know if you remember where you were when Columbine happened. Um, I know where I was. I was at a chapel service at Moody Bible Institute when we heard about what had just happened in Columbine and we all stopped and we prayed during the chapel service for what was going on. That was like the, the watershed moment, right? I mean, that was the first one that was really like, what? Somebody walked into a school and just started shooting people? Since then, we can't remember them all. We can't if you try to remember them. Like, which one are we going to forget? Are we going to forget, like, the Washington Navy Yard? Are we going to forget the, the Aurora Theater? Are we going to forget Nickel Mines? Are we going to forget Sandy Hook? Which one do we lose? St. Bernardine the, or Planned Parenthood? Where, where is it that we are going to forget? You know, Orlando's the latest in a string of these things, but it has become so commonplace that honestly, if it comes up on my internet browser and it's not like the whole world's falling apart, I can still scroll down through the rest of the news to see what's going on. When sin stops being a thing that I'm just dealing with in my life with my family where I'm trying not to be angry, it becomes, moves way past sin to a place where it's iniquity when you see systemic brokenness in society that we begin to think is commonplace. That's when it's moved from sin to iniquity. We have iniquity in our culture that has to do with unforgiveness. We have no idea how to process pain in our world. And when pain leads to reaction, And we don't find a way to process that. There is a systemic brokenness that doesn't allow for unity, that doesn't allow for love, that doesn't allow for healing. We are experiencing it on ways that are unparalleled in U.S. history right now. Even the Wild West did not have the same kind of experience that we have right now. And we have more infrastructure and we are more civilized than we've ever been. And yet, what's happening is in our hearts and in our minds, we don't know how to process pain very well. And a reaction to that is what's hurting us. Those are the sensational things, right? Those are the sensational. But if we move from mass killings and mass shootings, and we take a step down to domestic abuse, all of a sudden it becomes very difficult for us to quantify just how much is going on. And then if we take a step down further from that and we talk about the relationships that are being broken, the covenant relationships, the marriages that are being broken because we don't know how to process pain. We just realize that it is just pandemic in our culture, that we don't know how to walk through pain. I have an anger problem. Always have. I seriously, when I was a kid, you're going to have a hard time finding a kid who had a bigger temper than me. 
I mean, my brother loved it, loved it, because he would just like walk past me and he'd just look at me funny, and I'd start swinging. Like, I, I don't know what it was in me, but I anger problem. Can I ask my high school buddy here, Nate? He saw me on the roads when I was in high school. Anger in me if somebody cut me off on the roads. Man, just oh, quick to temper on the basketball court, on the soccer field. Man, I was all up in anybody's grill instantly. Bam, fire, man. I was just ready to go. As a matter of fact, when I went, to, I was supposed to uh, play uh, soccer in college, and I had a thing worked out with the coach and everything. But right before I went to camp, I decided I got to quit soccer my freshman year. I can't show up at Bible college training to go into the ministry when I'm about to go out on the soccer field, and I know I will lose my testimony the first time someone tries to do something to me. Anger is a real issue. It's a real issue, and sin and pain are real issues, and all of us are hurt and affected by sin, and all of us need to know what to do when we are hurt by sin and when we are affected by it. I want you to stop right now and think for a second. What's the place in your life where you've been hurt, where, you, where it's still there? You know, it's still sore. That relationship with that family member, who you're like, okay, whatever. I've either learned to just like ignore that and no longer engage them, so I've detached from them because I haven't been able to make peace with that in my life, or that place where I'm seriously still at guns with that person or with that system or with that problem. Where's the anger in my life? Where's the hurt in my life? There's this quote by Charles Allen. It says, sorrow is a wound. Listen to this quote. Sorrow is a wound. It cuts deeply but sorrow is a clean wound. It will heal unless something gets in the wound, such as bitterness, self-pity, or resentment. I was in the hospital a few weeks ago, you know, when I came home from being overseas and my blood was bad. And so I couldn't fight off infection because my blood was bad. And when we got bad blood with people, we can't figure it out. No matter what, when we got bad blood, when the blood's infected, it doesn't work out. You can say something and I can't hear you right. And I can say something and you can't hear me right. We can't reconcile because we have bad blood. And we are told that there is blood that brings forgiveness. And there's blood that brings healing. Pure, perfect blood. But we have to bring our hurt to the blood of Jesus. We cannot take care of it on our own. There is no way. Jesus' mission that he calls his people to is to be reconcilers. There's this moment, that one with Joseph, where his brother's I mean, you know the story of Joseph. He gets thrown in the pit by his brothers. Then he gets sent into slavery by his brothers. And then he has to serve as a slave. And while he's in slavery, he gets falsely accused of rape by his employer. And then he gets thrown into, into prison. And he's in prison. And he doesn't know uh, what to do, but he does the best he can within prison. And he empowers other people within prison. And then they go and get ahead. And when they get ahead, they forget him. And they completely, and then finally, after all that, God sees him, sets him up, and he's the second most powerful man in the world. He goes to being vice president or whatever, secretary of state or whatever, from being in that situation. And then his brothers come waltzing in. This is the moment, you know? This is what Hollywood's made of. 
This is the moment when you get your vengeance, you know? When you, when you figure out how, you know how good it feels in Hollywood when you see that movie where the, the bad guy's been doing this and doing this and the good guy's been kind of taking it and then finally at the end, he gets to put a slug in that guy. How good it feels, how many movies are sold over the idea of justice and vengeance. Joseph says, to his brothers after their dad dies and they're scared to death. He says, I'm not in the place of God. God sent me here for a purpose. You intended this for evil, but God intended it for good. And he forgives them. Here's the thing. Is it's not enough to talk about how we process our pain. We need the blood of Christ. We need to know that there's justice. We need to know that when I'm falsely accused, when this person's hurt me, that Jesus had to be beaten and hung on a cross for that sin. Someone paid for that already. And when I have to go back in my head and I need to hold on to that and wish that I could hurt that person again or I could wish that I could hold something against them or I feel justified in how I talk behind their back or I try to ally people with me against that person or any of that stuff, when I do that, what I'm saying is the blood of Jesus is not enough to forgive that sin. I still have to take justice into my own hands. The blood of Jesus wasn't enough for that. And if it's not enough for that, then it's not enough for me, which is why there's this amazing equation in scriptures that says, as you forgive others, so you will be forgiven. Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Is this blood enough for me? Then it's enough for them. And if it's not enough for them, then it's not enough for me. That's the way it works. I would love to keep going. I have so much on this topic, so many great stories to talk about, but we're not going to do it. What I want you to do first is this. Think about that thing, and then I'm going to tell a story, okay? Out of all those mass shootings, one of the ones that rips my heart out the most is Charleston. Remember the church in Charleston? One of the things that's unique about this situation in Charleston is this, that the mass shooter is still alive. Typically, the person is dead. But in this situation, the person's still alive, going on trial right now, right? You hear about it, white supremacist, self-proclaimed white supremacist who says his whole purpose in the shooting was to start a race war. That's what his desire was. I don't know if any of you have seen the ESPN special related to this. Spectacular story. So one of the people who was killed was this woman who was a minister there. And she got shot for no reason other than she was African-American and happened to be at this church. That's why she was killed. And her son was a baseball player on the college baseball team. And when this happened, um, he did the same thing that happened at um, at the nickel mine shooting. Remember what the Amish did at the nickel mine shooting? They got up and they said, we forgive, we forgive. Well, this guy, he got up, and maybe you saw that. He got up on national television, and there was microphones all in front of him, this college baseball player, and his mom was just killed by a guy around his age who's still alive sitting there, and he proclaims forgiveness. Man, I have, like, the chills and goosebumps. And I remember the interview says that his with some of his family members is they say, we were so angry at him because he said our family forgives him. They were like, we weren't at a place where we were ready to forgive. How dare he speak that on our behalf? But he took it upon himself to represent his mother and his family. 
And what he said was, is he's like, I'm not going to let this be what that guy wants it to be. This is not going to be a race war. What this is going to be is this is going to be something altogether different. And they were people of faith. And he ended up leading his coach to Christ. He ended up leading these people to Christ. And what he was saying was, this is not what my mom would want. And there ended up being this big rally in Charleston where there was all these people from different races, different nationalities, all getting together, filling the streets and saying, we, ne- we will not fight this way. We fight with love and with forgiveness. And we will not allow what he wants to happen. And they came together. It's an amazing moment. a spectacular moment. You know, forgiveness is the reason why forgiveness is the most powerful force on earth, and it is. It's because when you are victimized, when you are hurt, you are now in the position of power. Did you realize that? Whoever the person is who is hurt is the most powerful person on earth. When you are the victim, when you are hurt, you hold the power because justice is on your side now. So now you have the power to take it back to them or you have the power to release it. Once you've been the offender, once you've been the majority offender, now you have no power. You've given it away. Now it rests in how the response will be. Ever notice this? In, in domestic abuse, it happens all the time. After someone gets hurt, the person who's been the offender, they're like all of a sudden cowering. Like, oh, I'm sorry. I, you know, all of that. Because they know they have no power anymore. In the race conversation right now, those of us who are Caucasian, how do you handle that conversation? We got no power in this conversation in the sense of like, yes, this is bad. Uh, I don't know what to do. You know, that whole thing. But there is power. And, and our brothers and sisters, yeah, listen to this. In the kingdom of God, one of the cool things is, is that if you look at what it looks like to be South Asian, to have um, like Indian skin, picture that as God's pinky. You know, and then you look at like African-American skin and you picture that as another finger and you look at like Asian skin, you know, and what that looks like in the kingdom of God. He doesn't have one color in there in the body of Christ. It's all the different colors on the body, you know, and if one of my colors is like experiencing pain because of its color, that hurts us, right? But the, but the thing is, is in the place of weakness, in the place of hurt is also the greatest potential for the power. And what happened in Charleston is that I was in awe and wonder watching this kid stand behind a microphone and say, we extend forgiveness to this kid. And I thought there is no way in a million years that I could do what he just did. I don't see it. How does he do that? How does he do that? That is power. And when Jesus hangs on the cross, when Jesus shows up, the first thing he says to the people who are afraid and in anxiety, he wants to be like, no, you can't be focused on yourself and in fear and anxiety. I have a mission for you. You gotta be those who send out in forgiveness and conquer the problem. And, but the first thing he says when he gets on the cross, the moment when he's on the cross, the very first thing he says on the cross is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Man, When I look at Stephen being stoned and in the midst of stoning saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. When I look at what happened when Paul was stoned, when he was hammered with those stones and he comes back in and proclaims forgiveness. Listen, every one of us right now has been hurt. Some of us in more systemic ways than others. 
you know? For, for our brothers and sisters who are African-American, you guys know. You guys know things that the rest of us don't know. And you experience things that the rest of us don't. But there is every person in this room who has experienced pain and who has experienced hurt. And every person in this room has been beat up in one way or another. And our ministry as gospel ministers is that we have an opportunity in that place of pain to bring the greatest sense of power that this world has ever seen, which is when complete and total injustice happens to Jesus. He says, no, 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 no. Would I back away from this? This is what Jesus literally says when you read it. He says, shy away from this moment? It is for this moment that I came, that I may proclaim the goodness of my Father. This is the moment. Where are you hurt? That is not an unfortunate series of events that's outside of God's sovereignty. That is the moment where God is giving you the power to be a reconciler, one who wields the power of the gospel that says, Jesus is speaking peace to me so I can take the power of the Holy Spirit and I can forgive and I can change this world by the power of the gospel. It's in your marriage. It's in your church. It's in society. We shy away from pain. We lock the door. We hide in fear. What he says is, get out there and experience the pain so that you can give the forgiveness. That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like. All right, we got to close. I don't want to close because this thing keeps going. It gets really cool. Um, Billy Graham said in marriage, um, what we've discovered in marriage is that we need two people who can forgive. One who can say, I'm sorry, and the other who can say, it's okay, I forgive you, and then vice versa. That's what Billy Graham says. That's because that's a covenant. We exist in a covenant here in the body of Christ. We are given this covenant, and what it takes to be in this body and function in the covenant under the blood of Jesus is the ability to say, we are broken people who all need the blood of Jesus, so I can say, I'm sorry, and you can say, I, can for- I forgive you, and vice versa. Power of the gospel starts there. That's the power of the gospel. Jesus, we thank you and praise you. We thank you and praise you for the gospel. We thank you and praise you for gospel. We thank you and praise you for gospel. We thank you, Jesus, for gospel. There is no way. I might as well stay in my bolted-in room if there is not a present Jesus and a present Holy Spirit who can empower me to acknowledge the problem, to feel the pain, and to extend forgiveness that breaks down barriers. We thank you, God, for the saints of old who, while under the flame of persecution, have forgiven those who have tortured them. God, we thank you for those who are presently doing that in our world for being Christians right now in other parts of the world where they are forgiving those who are crushing them for being Christians. God, we beg of you in our society that there would be bright lights that would rise up in Orlando right now and would extend forgiveness. God, we beg of you right now that in marriages across the United States that you would raise up the gospel of Jesus Christ to extend forgiveness, to maintain the covenant. That God, where parents and children have been divided, where, where, where those economically divided have been strained against one another. God, where genders have been divided, where races have been divided. God, where brother against brother has been divided, where people against God 
have been divided. You have extended a relationship to us that started with forgiveness. And that gospel of forgiveness, God, I ask that for each one of us, that we would hear your words again, Jesus. That we would hear the words of Jesus right now. That you would breathe over us. That you would say, peace be with you. I breathe over you. Receive the Spirit. As the Father sent me, I send you. Go and forgive them in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace. Peace be with you. Love you.